Welcome to the Renaissance Church Podcast. Our mission is to glorify God and to make disciples by bringing the gospel into all of life in all the earth. This is Chris Kipp, lead pastor of Renaissance Church here in Richmond, Texas. And if you've not joined us in a worship gathering or at a house church yet, we would love to have you join us. You can find out more information at rin-church.org. And I pray that you are encouraged and edified by the proclamation of God's word today. We're going to be in Ephesians. We started a series um, called In. And the reason why we called it In is that throughout the book of Ephesians, we have this phrase, In Christ, In Him. If you just look at the book, it is all over the place. We're going to see it again today. We're in Ephesians chapter 2, if you want to go there with me. And um, this in Christ phrase, it means a lot for us. It means many, many things for us. But one thing it absolutely means is that when God feels far away, he's not. Because you're in Christ right now. If you're a believer in Jesus, if you, have, if you have made him Lord of your life, if you've surrendered yourself to him, you right now are in Christ. And I know our feelings are like this, right? It's up and it's down. We're so close. And we're like, no, we're so far. And I'm in a desert. No, I'm, I'm on the mountaintop, right? We have all these emotions and feelings on the inside. But the reality is, no matter how we feel, we're in Christ right now today. And that's really, really good news for us. We are in Christ. That's what we're looking at. And what I want us to, uh, to talk about this morning is this. What is truly at stake with Christian unity? What's truly at stake with Christian unity? The, the title of my sermon today is Demo Day for Dividing Walls. We're going to see this in the, in the passage. Demo day for dividing walls. And this is what Jesus came to do. It's what Paul's going to show us today. Just, just so to give you a little bit of framework, last week, Jason looked at the first uh, half of this chapter, which was all about Jesus reconciling us to the Father. So if you were to picture a cross and you have the, this uh, vertical beam, right? It's like Jesus is, is bringing man back to God. But this second half is the, the cross beam where he's bringing us back together again. It's so beautiful. We're going to read this together, starting in verse 11 of chapter 2. The Apostle Paul writes this, So then, remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called, we got some labels, the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. At that time, you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh, he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations so that he might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. 
He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put the hostility to death. He came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Last verse, verse 22. In him, you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the spirit. This is God's word. So Paul, he, in the first half, talked about how we're brought back to the Father through Jesus. Now he's, he's detailing for us how we are brought together, and the whole theme is unity. In fact, that's the heading in my Bible. It says, unity in Christ, and this is this beautiful picture. We're going to dive into it, but I want to start at the, the last verse first, and then we're going to work our way backwards the last verse said this, in him, you are also being built together. Can you just say the word together with me? Together. together. Built together for God's dwelling in the spirit. Now, what Paul's using is this picture of Obviously, God's constructing something. He's building something, and he's use, using language of the temple. Right? They, they would have seen this beautiful building that was built out of stone blocks, right? And, and it was built together, and it was the place in which God's presence actually dwelt in a physical place. Like, priests would go in, and if they were not right with God, they would die in there. They had bells sewn into the bottom of their garment, the high priest, when he would go in to make the sacrifice in the Holy of Holies, and if they ever heard the bell stop jingling, they're like, uh-oh, homie did not get his heart right before he went in there, and they'd have to pull his dead body out of the presence of God. I mean, that's how serious this dwelling place, this temple of God was in their minds. Paul is a Pharisee. He's a, he's a Jew, and he's writing to these Gentiles, and he's speaking to them in language about, tem about a temple, but he says, no, no, but here's something new. God's doing something new, and he's building you, Gentiles, together along with the Jews, to house his spirit. I was thinking of Jesus' prayer, the high priestly prayer of Jesus. It's in John 17. I think I might have a slide for this, Griffin. Verse 20, this is a prayer of Jesus. Just listen to this prayer. I pray not only for these, but also for those who believe in me through their word. He's praying not just for those, those 12 disciples or that outer ring of disciples that were following him. He's praying for you and I who would believe. In verse 21, here's what he says. May they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in I mean, Can we imagine the oneness of the Son and the Father? May they also be one 
in us so that the world may believe you sent me. Verse 22, I have given them the glory you have given me. I don't even know what that phrase fully means. Somehow we've been given the glory that Jesus received from the Father, that that's somehow upon us as his people. Wow. So that they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me so that they may be made completely one. That the world may know you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. This is the prayer of Jesus. In four times, in five sentences, he prays for our oneness. Have you ever thought about that? Maybe, just maybe, Jesus knew how hard it would be for us to be one. You know what I'm talking about? I believe we're living in a time that's a convergence, and I think you, you, you all know this, we're at the convergence of disunity, division, and disconnection. That's the day that you and I are living in right now. There's disunity because we can't even agree about what unites us anymore, <laughs> right? Nationally, um, even spiritually within the church, we have division. Uh, we saw this during the COVID time period, why it, it revealed and it deepened divisions. We saw the race riots that were happening. Uh, there's been political division. There's division in our society over our values. There's increasing hostility. And in the middle of all of that is disconnection. There was a study that was put together by Harvard grad school in October of 2020. So this would have been like, you know, at the height of the COVID lockdowns, right? So the data they were saying is that 36% of Americans feel serious loneliness. 61% of young adults feel serious loneliness. And 51% of moms with young children feel serious loneliness. What was so interesting about that time period is that that was the height of digital connection. Everybody was just like, you know, Facebooking and whatever other platform you might be on, right? We're all trying to connect with people. We're, we're doing Zoom calls all the time for work and church and, and all this kind of stuff. And in the, the height of digital connection, quote unquote connection, everybody was feeling super lonely. And here's the thing, I think people are still seriously lonely. So we have disunity, we have division, we have disconnection. And I think in, in the disconnection of the body of Christ, there are a lot of people who have lost the value of being the church together, of being built into a dwelling place by God's, of God's spirit. And I know I've got three kids that are all in extra, extracurricular stuff. We're, we're busy people. We, we uh, unfortunately, uh, most of us have to probably your dual income family because you're just trying to afford where you live, right? 
We're busy. We have a, a pervasive mistrust of organizations. We've seen too many you know, churches fall apart. We've seen too many pastors fall. We have marketers who have capitalized on cause-oriented millennials and said, take all that energy, that cause, and let's just put it over here instead. So we have this disconnection in the church. And, and what would just struck me about Jesus' prayer is that he's not praying for the world out there to be one. Jesus is praying for his people to be one, which means this. We get the mission right when we get right. Our unity is meant to be an oddity that reveals Jesus' divinity. Let me say that again. Our unity, it's meant to be an oddity that reveals Jesus' divinity that the world may know, that the world may believe. So what's at stake with oneness, with our unity? Well, I think there's multiple things, but absolutely one of the things we know is that us revealing the divinity of Jesus to the world is absolutely at stake with our oneness. So how do we maintain unity? What is the better word that we can speak in a world that is characterized right now by disunity, division, and disconnection? Well, let's dive into this. Number one, God's building one big open concept home to dwell in. That's what Paul says, right? He said this in verse 21, in him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy... No, if you are a person who's ever built anything, has any building you've ever built grown before? Probably not, right? So he's mixing his metaphors here, and he's talking about building, constructing something, but it's, it's alive. It's this organic body, this, this body of Christ, this church that's being built together, and it's growing into a holy temple in the Lord, and God's building us together for a dwelling place for his spirit. It's one big open concept home for God to dwell in. And what Paul does it's like an architect who has drawn up plans, right? He's planned out everything. And what Paul just did is he just kind of gave us the blueprints and said, hey, this is what God's planning. This is what he has in mind. These are the blueprints. He's building this beautiful, open concept home. And it's a big, beautiful, diverse, multicolored, multi-ethnic family for himself the church. In Revelation, at the end of the book, where all this is going to culminate, every tribe, nation, tongue before the throne of God. This is God's plan. This is his vision for us. And it's not just a church in the organizational sense. He puts it this way, you're members of his household. Did you know that everything is better with family? Everything's better with family. And God's saying this, look, 
all of you, all you Gentiles and Jews, God's bringing you together into one family. It's his church. Now for us as a church body, we have, we've expressed our ministry in this way in house churches. We have five house churches and we, we envision these, cha- these house churches growing and multiplying. And this is the place where we kind of live out a meaningful, tangible expression of God's desire for us to live like family, to, to grow together in the church. And, and we just believe that God is doing something across not only the globe, but across our city to raise up house churches and house church leaders. Um, you've probably noticed, if you've gone anywhere around here, that we live in an incredibly diverse place. Amen? I came from uh, Round Rock, Texas before this. Before that, I was in Wimberley, Texas, okay? And you know, some cities say they're diverse, right? But then when you walk into Walmart in Richmond and you're like, wow, like I, this, this aisle has people on it that like definitely are distinct. They're dressed very differently. They're, they're from a, a different country. Then go to the next one and it's like, no, they're from a totally different country than those people, but they're not from America. They go to this aisle and like, oh, there's a, there's a whole nother people group. And it's just like, we are so diverse here. And there's, this, there's this, uh, this thing that God's building, by the way, and it really is for every tribe, nation, tongue, and people. Which, this is a very, very significant word for us. God wants to build something in his church that is multi-ethnic and multicultural. It's every color under the sun. And Paul, in verse 11, he gets racial. Not racist, but he gets racial. In verse 11, he uses these terms that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcised, that's what the Jews would have called the Gentiles, right? By those called the circumcised, the Jews, and he says it again, which is done in the flesh by human hands, meaning this, the differences that we have, they're only skin deep. They're they're only skin deep. And he uses these terms that would have been loaded, by the way, with divisive, Overtones, right? Disunified overtones and disconnected overtones. This was language that was full of, of terms that, that had ideologies connected to them. And he, it's just like he just kind of drops it in there just to kind of get everybody sitting on the edge of their seat like, oh my gosh, what, 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 what's going on here? And he says this. At that time, you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel, foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope, and without God in the world. He gives them a list of all the problems that they had, and here's the thing. How many of you, before you knew Christ, were losing sleep about the fact that you were not a citizen of Israel? Anyone? Did that ever cross your mind? No. Uh, perhaps you were really bothered by the fact that you were a foreigner to the covenants of promise, right? You were staying up at night, wringing your hands like, oh, I'm real worried about that one. No one? Okay. Maybe you felt a little hopeless 
Amen? I did. Without God, oh, I felt like something was missing in my life. You see, what Paul does is he tells them a list of things that were problems that they had, but they didn't know they had them. See, this, the, the, the scariest thing is not the problems that you know that you have, it's the problems that you don't know you have. My grandpa used to say, don't go to the doctor, they're just going to find something wrong with you, right? Amen? Sorry if you're a doctor in this house, okay? God bless you. We're, we, we still go to the doctor. But I, I just thought that was funny. It's like, hey, there, there's a list of things that, that were problems for you, and you probably didn't even know you had problems. Did you know that you cannot even understand your past without Jesus? You don't even know your past without being on the other side of the cross of Jesus. It's only from there that you can look back and be like, oh, like, no, I, I felt like things were a little bad. I, I was going off the rails, right? But like, now I know like how bad this was. Here's what he says. To be Christless is a problem, A. B, it's to be peopleless. You were, you were peopleless. C, you were promiseless. D, you were hopeless. E, you were godless. Now, I just want to remind you of who he's talking to and where they are. This is in Ephesus. This is the temple of Artemis. This would have been full of the whole like pantheon of gods, and Artemis was the primary goddess that they were worshiping. So there was no shortage of little g gods. But Paul says, look, when you were without Christ, you were without God. And friends, we live in a place that is full of gods, Right? We're surrounded by people who are worshiping something or someone. And Paul says this, look, if you are without Christ, you're without God. Okay? It's very, very important that we understand what he's saying. This was a major problem. And by the way, when you, when you, if you were one of those people that like, man, I received Jesus when I was like six years old or seven years old. And when it, you know, everybody tells their testimony and like the guy's like, yeah, I killed everyone. And I did all the drugs and I, you know, I burned buildings down and then like Jesus changed my life and everyone's crying. They're like, oh, that's the best testimony in the world. Right. And then you, you, you feel like, man, I have no story. I just want you to know you have an amazing testimony because you were peopleless. You were promiseless. You were hopeless, you were godless, you were Christless, and Jesus changed your life, right? Amen. So the big problem is this, you were separated from God's people. Here's the main thing that Paul's saying, here's the next point. Jesus brought the sledgehammer to the dividing wall of hostility. Amen? I, I mean, I feel like Chip Gaines just saying that right now, okay? I, I feel like it's like a hashtag demo day. I want to get my hard hat on and I want to break something down, right? Just by saying this because Jesus brought the sledgehammer to the dividing wall of hostility. Jesus on the cross, and this is, this is what he points to. He doesn't point to his triumphal resurrection. He says, on the cross, by the blood, Jesus tore down the dividing wall of hostility. He put it to death. It's like he's just like, bah, 
It's amazing. What would this have meant to them? Well, I want to show you a picture of something. This is, this is uh, from the temple wall. So there was a four-foot wall, so about yay high, that separated the outer court where the Gentiles could go from the inner court where only Jews could go. And they found this. This was a, um, a sign that they ha actually had carved. They had multiples of these around the wall. And in this one, there's actually remnants of red paint in the, in the lines, which means this was like emphasized with red paint, like, you know, this is important. And this was found in 1871 by Charles Simon Claremont Guignol. French, I can't say it. Here's what it read. No foreigner is to enter within the balustrade and forecourt around this sacred precinct. Whoever is caught will himself be responsible for his consequent death. Wow. In Texas, here's what that would look like. Violators will be shot. Survivors will be shot again. That's the Texas version of that sign. Okay, some of you might have that on your fence, right? You know, Second Amendment, I'm going to shoot everyone that comes to my door. <laughs> That's basically what it said, which, by the way, is incredibly hostile, right? And the only way that you got into that court was basically by being born a Jew or by converting, and you had to go through a lengthy process to convert to Judaism, you could not get in there. But Jesus, Jesus tears down the wall of hostility. Hostility is deep-seated ill will. And the hostility was between Christians, Messianic Jews and Gentiles who were believers. Paul says, Jesus came to tear that down. Um, recently, I went to HEB, and they, uh, they took down all of the plastic plexiglass dividers. Have, have y'all been there since then? It was so weird. Like, I just felt like I was standing, and that, the teller never felt closer than ever before. I was just like, oh my gosh, they're like right there. Like, you know, it's like, you know, like the, uh, I don't know what to do with my hands thing. It's like, you just like, I just want to like touch them. It's like, oh, I can like, you know, like, it's just, it's weird that, like, I didn't even realize there was this, it was all invisible glass, right? But like, it made a difference in my experience of the teller, you know, stand. And I was thinking about the invisible things, because what Paul's not talking about is Jesus coming and literally taking down the temple wall. Paul's talking about the invisible hostilities that we have between us. He says Jesus came to tear that down. He came to tear it down. He uses these terms. He preached peace to those who were far, meaning Gentiles, you, you did not have the covenants, you didn't have the law, you, you did not have, you know, God leading you with a pillar of fire, you know, by night and a cloud by day, like you didn't have any of that, you were far, but the people of Israel, they were near, but here's the thing, none of you were in until Jesus came.
He's the way in. And then I think it's very, very important as we think about unity that Paul roots all of this in the cross of Jesus. And here's why. Because when it comes to our unity, it is actually not the triumphant resurrection power life that we need. It's the humility of the cross that we need. It's where Jesus goes and he, he considers his life of, of no value to himself. When, when people are are uh, saying, you know, defend yourself, he's quiet. And he humbles himself, obedient to the point of death, lowering himself. And the Bible says this, that God lifted him to the highest place. See, the cross, it lowers us and it lifts us at the same time. When it comes to our unity, the only way for us to maintain unity is to go low. Because guess what? Our disagreements are inevitable. Conflict, inevitable. I mean, most of us can barely maintain oneness in our own house. Amen? One of you likes it cold. One of you likes it hot. One of you is a morning person. One of you is an evening person. One of you, you know, likes tea. One of you likes coffee, right? You know, you just have all the things of life and just oneness in your own home is a miracle. You're like, thank you, Jesus, right? But now you come into a room full of other Christians. You're like, this, really? Conflict's inevitable. And the marriage advice that we get, it actually applies to church life. And here's what they used to tell us is that um, there's three of you in this relationship. It's God and it's husband and wife. And here's the deal. If you are both moving towards him, then your union together is going to be okay. But if at any point, one or both of you stop moving towards Jesus, meaning you stop lowering yourself at the foot of the cross saying, just as we saying. I lay down my life, I surrender it all to you. When, when we stop doing that, guess what is going to fall apart? Our unity. And so he roots it in the cross where we are all lowered and we're all lifted. And by the way, the cross still has hostility, smashing power. Here's the last thing I wanna say. Christ is the heart of this home. In our modern, you know, home planning, we talk about the kitchen is the heart of the home. Have you, have you ever heard that before? You've watched enough HGTV to know the kitchen is the heart of the home. You know, an architect now is designing things around the kitchen. How does the living space and all that connect to the kitchen? Because why? That's where we all gather. It's where we eat. It's where we talk. It's where the family comes together. And, and Paul uses the word cornerstone, which was the, the first stone that was laid, and that stone was the one in which all the other stones were laid in reference to that one. So the cornerstone was incredibly important. Everything was built around that stone. It was the heart of the structure. But friends, Jesus has installed himself like the kitchen, the gathering place where we all come together. He is the heart of this home. So I want us to consider 
three things as we close. The first one is this. Do you value what God is building? Do you value what God is building? Do you value what God values? The blueprint of God is to make a people for himself. It's really easy for us because we have podcasts and we have great worship songs, we have YouTube, that we could go and construct a Christian life that is all about me. My algorithm will just feed me all the stuff I already like. And we can disconnect ourselves from the church. We can, you know, we're busy, we're all busy. We can justify that for ourselves. And what I wanna say is this, Jesus didn't come to build your little world. Jesus came to build a kingdom. And we need each other. The church needs you. And you need the church. Because this is the dwelling place of God's spirit. Do you value what he values? I was thinking of the words of James. James is, uh, he's like a hardcore you know, author in the New Testament. Here's what he said. Faith without works is dead, meaning what you do rather than what you say is what you actually believe. That's what he's saying. What you do rather than what you say is what you believe. And here's the thing. I want to challenge you to connect yourself to the body of Christ. If that makes you mad, like, I hate this pastor in this church. Go find another church and then connect yourself to that church, okay? It's so important. 1 Peter 5, 8 says, your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. If you've ever watched National Geographic, you know that the lion runs after the herd and then he tries to get one off by itself, right? Because when we're off by ourselves, we are, we are prey for the evil one. Friends, you need the body of Christ. Don't squander the privilege of being a part of what God's building. The second thing, are you harboring hostility? Is there a plexiglass thing between you and other believers in your life where you're like, there's something here. I feel it. I'm angry. I've, I've got this unresolved thing, and I just, uh, Is there hostility in you? And here's what I would say. Don't let it fester any longer. You need to seek the Lord and do exactly what he says to do. Okay? Our unity is an oddity that reveals Jesus' divinity. Lastly, never forget he is our peace. He is our peace. Husbands and wives, he is our peace. Friends, he's our peace. House churches, he is our peace. Meaning, if we will all go towards him, we can get over anything. But if we ever dig in our heels and say, no, no, I'm not gonna lower myself anymore. 
I will not humble myself here. I can guarantee you that you have come to an impasse and you're just gonna, you're gonna stick right there. He is our peace. We must follow Jesus to the cross where he lowered himself for you, right? Where he became obedient to death for you, where he claimed no rights of his own for you. If we can keep ourselves in that posture, no dividing wall will be able to prevail. It's demo day for dividing walls. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Renaissance Church Sermon Podcast. To support our work, you can like, share, subscribe, or you can donate at rin-church.org.